So God's grace and peace are yours in Jesus Christ our Lord on this Maundy Thursday. It was funny, Pastor told you that story and I actually had that in my notes. And so I just told him that he stole some of my thunder. So if my sermon's shorter, it's his fault and you can blame him. But no, actually it was something I wanted to fill you in on. My son right now is doing Latin and Latin derivatives and the word mandate comes from that. So again, that command, that idea of mandate, that's the derivative word that we have in our English language. And so this idea of washing feet, I was talking to my wife about this, and my wife is one of those people that is grossed out by feet. Uh, some of you that are sitting in here, I saw kind of snickering in agreement or in sympathy with my wife. However, my nine-month-old, he's almost nine months old, feet are still the most beautiful things in the world. And so even though she hates feet, doesn't want to touch feet, wants, doesn't want anything to do with them, when it's her baby's feet, she loves those feet. And I was talking to Steph Kolbaum also as baby Theo continues to have adjustments to his foot as he continues to grow and get casted. She actually has a blog called Beautiful Feet. And so I find that fascinating, especially with mothers, that mothers emphasize that as they look at the child as it grows and the love that they have for that. And I can't help but think of our Savior as his children, as he looks at our feet and looks at them very differently than we as human beings would look at them. A couple of just notes about this passage in John, and this is one of those things, if you've been in the theology business for a while or if you study the life of Christ a lot, this is one of those accounts that we read quite frequently. But the idea of him taking, out his, taking off his outer garments and actually wrapping that and making a towel out of, uh, out of that and that sort of thing, that was unheard of, which is part of Peter's reaction. And he really is truly taking on the form of a servant or a slave. In the culture that he was living in, the Jews would have had some lower-class Gentile doing that kind of work. So for Jesus to do that, that was a bit of a shocker. And so I think that um, John's original audience, who would have been Greek-speaking Jews for the most part, but also uh, just Greeks in general, would have recognized that there was something significant about this. But this idea of feet, I, I wanted to kind of talk about this a little bit more in the context of that Romans passage we read. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is also actually a quote from Isaiah. And so if you look at that passage in particular, there's something about that, the, the, the good messenger that shows up and how our world desperately needs good news. I was doing some research as the history teacher. I just can't turn that part of my brain off. And so when I do a sermon, I look at history. That's just what I do naturally. So I apologize, it's just what I do. It's just how I'm made up. And so in the last 4,000 years of recorded history, I don't, I don't know if I want to kind of take a poll here, but how many of those 4,000 years do you think have there been zero wars? Any ideas? That there's no war in the last 4,000 years? Zero? Right, the percentage is 7 to 8%. Only 7 to 8% of those 4,000 years, it depends on how you count it and how you, what you call a war, you know, is it just a skirmish or is it full declaration of war? But for the last 4,000 years of human history, less than 8% has been without war, which is kind of interesting about our human condition if you think about that and how much history that's hidden in those 4,000 years. And that's the stuff we know about. Remember those first couple thousand years, we only have just, you know, just little snippets of things that have taken place. And so... It's probably actually more than that, and it might not even be seven to eight. It might be less than one if we actually went through all those years that we don't know about. But here's the thing. That's just the really obvious example of a lack of peace in this world. Think about the fragility of human existence, just natural disasters. How peaceful and at rest do you think people feel when they face Hurricane Harvey or an earthquake 
or something along those lines. What about our own personal existences, like uh, broken homes, anxiety, financial worries, depression, uh, political turmoil and division? All you have to do is turn on the news, and it seems like there's always this angst that's surrounding the culture. We have chronic illnesses. We experience loss. If you look back at the last year, and you can talk to the pastors in particular here, the last 12 months at Grace have been challenging when it comes to loss. We see that brokenness in the world in this congregation. So it's easy to see that not only externally with warfare and history, but also internally in our own congregation and within our own personal lives that we are really not at peace. And yet here we have Christ entering into our existence and and delivering good news. He has beautiful feet with what he preaches. So the idea that God notices, that he cares, and that he would lower himself into our condition and wash our feet as chaotic and as broken as we are, is truly an example of beautiful feet that brings the good news. It's interesting, if you read the whole text, and I actually recommend that during Holy Week, and I know Pastor would too, read the second half of John's Gospel, starting with Palm Sunday, so about chapter 12, and just read through, all the way through the resurrection, and just to get the drama of the event. If you do that, you'll notice that Jesus goes on an extended discourse. John, Jesus is famous for having these really long discourses where it sounds like he's repeating himself and saying all these philosophical terms. But immediately after this event, the washing of the feet and the Last Supper, Jesus teaches for quite a long time about the Holy Spirit. He teaches about instructions, he, uh, about how the church is going to function. He talks about how they're to react and be comforted by the gift of the Holy Spirit and where he's going and how he's preparing a place for them. He talks for quite a long time. And it's interesting because in John 14, 27, this is a famous memory verse. My uh, kids are memorizing this right now, actually. He says, peace I live with you, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So as he continues to equip his disciples, even after his resurrection, he says similar things. Peace be with you, or peace be unto you, when appearing to the disciples. The Apostle Paul will later encourage the uh, fellow believers, telling them to rejoice, to not be anxious, to make our requests known to God, and that the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts in Christ. Of course, one of the most famous prophecies about Jesus uh, happens in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born. One of his titles is the Prince, of Be- uh, the Prince of Peace. On this day, Jesus also institutes the sacrament of Holy Communion. And through this act of grace, we receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And the pastors, I don't know if you've noticed this the last couple of years, what do they say at the end of the conclusion of our meal? We are at peace with God. So Jesus, surely, when we're thinking about his beautiful feet, is a peace bringer. We have been given the message of reconciliation, which of course means that there is peace between two parties, and our feet, in this case, are being used by God to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. So this theme is found throughout Scripture, and it takes added meaning during the events of Holy Week. So not only does Christ have the feet of peace, we too have been called by him to bring that good news to others. He washes our feet, and we, by delivering this message, also have beautiful feet by proclaiming that good news um, to, to the rest of the world. Another aspect of this, of course, is this isn't the end of the story. This is just the beginning um, of this journey to the cross. You start on Palm Sunday, and really you can go back to his birth, is a journey to the cross. But Holy Week, of course, as Pastor said when he was being interviewed, has special significance for us as we look to Calvary and then ultimately to the empty tomb. There's this ancient poem, it's a medieval poem, and it's called Salve Munde Salutare, which is a cool thing to say, it just rolls off the tongue, right? 
It means savior of the world. In fact, um, there's a, and this is where you're going to hear the Aaron Hayes music geek a little bit. There's a composer named Buxtehude, which is an awesome German name to say. Um, everybody that loves to say it, loves to say it over and over. My uh, uh, Baroque kids that are in music appreciation right now, I've mentioned that, and they loved that one. And uh, when I was at Wheaton College, Buxtehude was the patron saint of the men's glee club just because they were the only ones that knew how to say it. Okay? So that's my educational background. Pastor's over here just shaking his head, just like, what kind of educational experience did you have? All right. <laughs> so uh, that Buxtehude, that fun name to say, actually creates the first Lutheran oratorio, which is kind of a dramatic scriptural text. It's, a, it's sort of like an opera, only it's sacred. Uh, the most famous oratorio in the world is Handel's Messiah. And so the first Lutheran oratorio is from this text, Savior of the World, and he called this text, Membra Jesu Nostri, or in English, the limbs of our Jesus. And it was meant to be performed during Holy Week. In this piece of music, there's poems and meditations on seven different aspects of Christ's crucified body, like the chest or the head or the side. The very first one of those poems is called Ad Pedes, the feet. So the very first meditation. This is a beautiful meditation, even in translation. I'm going to give you a clip of this. It's very interesting. Behold upon the mountains. This is going to be a quote first from Nahum. So this idea of bringing feet, um, of feet bringing good news, is throughout the Old Testament, not just in Isaiah. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of one bringing good news and proclaiming peace. The nails in your feet, the hard blows, and so grievous marks I embrace with love. Fearful at the sight of you, mindful of your wounds. Sweet Jesus, merciful God, I cry to you in my guilt. Show me your grace. Turn me not unworthy away from your sacred feet. Dear Jesus, bathed in tears, I kneel to you. In shame and grief, I lift my eyes to you. Prostrate before your cross, I bow to you. And thy dear feet, I embrace. Oh, look on me from the cross. Look and pardon me. It almost sounds like a psalm when you actually think about it. Oh, my beloved Jesus, stretched against that tree, whose arms divine are now enfolding me whose gracious heart is now upholding me. O oh, my beloved, let me wholly be transformed, forgiven, and one alone with thee. It's a beautiful poem, and that's just in translation. And so that should show you the meaning of this text, and that's just on the feet. Like, as I said, there are seven different aspects about Jesus, including the head. And we know the hymns, those of us who especially who know the, the hymn tradition, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, some of that text is actually lifted from this poem. Not exactly, but it's paraphrased. So it's all thought-provoking, of course. And our theme this year as a church and school has been to look up and see that our help comes from the Lord. And this text, this person is looking up and literally, not really admiring, but just taking in what Jesus has done on the cross. And so it's fascinating that Jesus, when he starts this journey here, would actually cause us first to look down physically as he's washing feet, right? You have to look down first in order that you can look up at the cross later, ascending in glory to heaven ultimately after his resurrection. In a way, we're being taught also to lower ourselves so that we can also look up, as that poem says, not only to our salvation on the cross, but also in our way of looking at others. These sort of reversals are very, very, uh, very, very much a God thing. It's the way he operates in this world, a sort of signature that he leaves throughout salvation history, that great reversal, turning things on their head. Throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, God frequently flips those things to demonstrate that he is in charge and that human beings are not. 
So the creator of the universe washes the feet of his creation. The maker of heaven and earth allows himself to be tortured, mutilated, and executed in the most shameful way possible. And yet, what seems like a defeat, what seems like the end, what seems like this ugly and inglorious final act, becomes that one moment in history in which humanity can conquer sin, death, and the devil through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, also in Romans, we are more than conquerors. The wounded and mangled feet on the cross are actually beautiful feet. The most beautiful feet, actually, in all of history, as the totality and endless love of God is poured out to save sinners who have no hope outside of Christ. And so does it look ugly? Yeah. Does it look kind of gross? The answer is yes. Is it bloody? Absolutely yes. But it's also beautiful. It's that one moment in history where there is an eternal answer for all of us who are at the foot of the cross. I'm, as, a, as a history geek, those of you who are marathon runners are going to recognize the story probably. This is very famous. How many of you know the story of Pheidippides? Anybody recognize this name? Pastor saluted me up front. We have two history geeks here talking, so this is good. Um, Pheidippides was a famous uh, runner. He was a courier in ancient Greece. They employed couriers to run messages all around ancient Greece. And during the Greco-Persian Wars of the 400s BC, the Greeks thought they were done. Uh, the king of Persia was coming in to basically wipe them off the map. He was going to enslave them. He was going to wipe out their culture, take them away, whatever it was. And so the Greeks were at their last gasp as a culture. And remember, in ancient Greece, they weren't a united single kingdom of Greece. There was Athens and Sparta and Corinth and all these different cities, right? And so the Athenians were one of the last holdouts, one of the last cities, and they got their troops together and they had a last desperate stand in the valley of Marathon. And so, to make a long story short, because of Greek military technology, because of their tactics, and those sort of things, the Greeks win an un improbable victory. And so Pheidippides, the story goes, now, just so you know, this is a legend, it's kind of conflated, there's about three or four stories that are associated um, with this, but I think this, this, this give, captures the spirit of what's going on here. Pheidippides is given the task to deliver the message of victory to the people of Athens. So he runs 25 or 26 miles from Marathon to Athens. Distance runners probably recognize that distance. Yeah, 26.2, there you go. So he runs that distance to Athens, and he collapses, he dies, and says one word, Nike, meaning victory. So that preaches well, and of course Nike's shoes loves that, right? And so, the, but that, that, that idea of Nike, of victory, in the moment of certain defeat, there's something about that story that resonates with all of us. When he arrives and he collapses out of joy and exhaustion, his feet were probably not in the greatest of condition. Would that be safe to say? Imagine how many blisters he had. Just throwing that out there. Or how many toenails that were cracked or broken up. This is not exactly a paved road. He's not running. I mean, this is up and down and through mountains and thorns and forests. This is not exactly just a flat run. Um, like in the, He's not running on a treadmill. This is nasty. And so he's going to show up. And even though he's a runner and he's used to this, those are probably pretty dirty feet we're dealing with. But to those ancient Greeks, those were the best feet that they could have ever hoped for. In fact, some historians, if you talk to them and they kind of analyze alternative history, they'll tell you that if the Greeks don't win that battle, that might have actually stopped Western civilization before it even took off. So it's one of those great battles of history. And so think about that now with us as we think about beautiful feet. 
this is just a temporal victory for Athens. They, of course, aren't going to last for forever. Athens will fall. But it's even more true about Christ and how his bloody feet are symbolic of our victory. His feet look like defeat. Yet on the cross, when he says, it is finished, we can now also say Nike. We can say victory. In this case, over sin, death, and the forces of evil. Unlike the Greeks, who didn't know if they were going to win or lose, in Christ, we know that our victory is certain and that we will reign with him for eternity. Through faith alone in Christ alone, we can look to the cross and not only see the cost of our sin, but our final destination of well, as well. So how beautiful are the feet of Christ, who preaches that good news to us. And may we also, through the Holy Spirit, have beautiful feet to those around us who need to hear this good news as well. To God alone the glory. Amen.